Uh, the floor is yours. What? What? Got to swear you in. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't forget to swear him in, Lindsey Graham. Couldn't wait to have him lie, I guess. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM people-powered radio in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, that's in California, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Eureka, California's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. On those fine stations and others, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Swell, exhausted, and confused today, but doing my best uh, to keep up, along with uh, Desi Doyen, who's doing her best as well. Good afternoon, evening, or uh, morning, Desi. <laughs> what time is it? God knows. No it's just idea. a crazy, busy news day, as usual. The uh, University you of... You know, Mil- your, your regular run-of-the-mill constitutional crisis, that's all. That's all. Uh, before we get to that constitutional crisis, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, uh, they have an Office of Emergency Management, and they have a Twitter account, which goes by the name Niner alerts on Twitter as the school's teams are called the 49ers. That Twitter account issued this tweet last night shortly after we got off the air. Uh, quote, Niner alert. Shots reported near the Kennedy building. Run. Hide. Fight. Secure yourself immediately. What kind of world do we live in now that there is, A, an Office of Emergency Management at every school in the country, and they issue alerts advising students to run, hide, and fight? What kind of world? Well, ours, I guess. Um, A man armed with a pistol opened fire on students at a North Carolina university during the last day of classes on Tuesday killing two people, wounding four, according to police. The shooting prompted a lockdown at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and caused widespread panic across campus. As students scrambled to take shelter after receiving those alerts and warnings, 
Police said two people were killed. Three remain in critical condition as of late Tuesday. The fourth person's injuries were less serious. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department identified the suspect as a 22-year-old who is in custody with charges pending. The state's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, said at a briefing late Tuesday that they will be taking a hard look into how the shooting happened and how to keep guns off campus and out of schools. He said a student should not have to fear for his or her life when they are on our campuses. Parents should not have to worry about their students when they send them off to school. And I know that this violence has to stop. Well, I agree. What will he and uh, other politicians, particularly on the Republican side, do about it? Probably nothing. But we will talk about that and much more in North Carolina with my guest, Tom Sullivan, who is in Asheville today. Speak with him shortly. There was also a special election for the U.S. House that was held in North Carolina yesterday to fill a vacancy in the 3rd Congressional District. And there's another U.S. House election coming up in a few months to fill the still vacant seat in the state's 9th Congressional District following the GOP absentee ballot fraud scandal last November, plus what I had also hoped to talk to Tom about. We'll see if we have any time left today. Uh, The ongoing rift between progressives and conservative Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, or the DCCC as it's known, but who knows what we'll be able to get to today following the continuing blockbuster news That Desi reference there coming out of D.C., where Attorney General William Barr appeared for an extraordinary hearing in the GOP majority U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee today and was scheduled to appear again tomorrow in the Democratic led House Judiciary Committee. But it looks like now he is uh, refusing to show up, according to reports. Not a surprise, given what happened today in the U.S. Senate uh, and the response to that. We'll get to let me I want to play some of this before we have to get to my guest. But before we can even get to that, this all started again just after we got off air on Tuesday. The special counsel, Robert Mueller, it turns out twice pushed Donald Trump's new appointed uh, newly appointed attorney general, William Barr, to release more of his team's investigative findings back in late March, just days after Mueller had delivered the report to Barr. Mueller cited the gap between Barr's interpretation of the findings and the actual full report, according to a letter from Mueller, initially reported by The Washington Post late Tuesday and released in full today. Mueller and his investigators, according to the letter, also pressed the Justice Department to include summaries of their work in the hours before Barr released his initial four-page summary all by himself, on his own, on March 24. The new document that were was released on Wednesday, the letter from Mueller, now reveals that Barr's summary letter, which he had released two days earlier, and nearly a month before he would allow the public to even see the the full redacted uh, version of that report. That summary letter allowed Trump to wrongly claim that he had been vindicated in the Russia investigation. He clearly was not, though he and his supporters have continued forwarding that those false claims ever since Barr's initial misleading four page letter was released. 
Now, Mueller's letter was sent to Barr just uh, three days later after that summary. He sent it to the attorney general and it revealed his deep concern about how Barr was handling the initial release of the special counsel's finding, which Mueller said in the letter created, quote, public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. He wrote, this threatens to undermine a central purpose for which the department appointed the special counsel to assure full public confidence in the outcome of the investigations. This is what Mueller wrote in this letter, which uh, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal characterized today during Senate testimony with Barr as being like nothing he had ever seen from a prosecutor to an attorney general, memorial, memorializing these uh, grave concerns. Mueller added in his memo to Barr, quote, the summary letter the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24 did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work and conclusions. Mueller asked the department to release the summaries of his findings, which he included again with the letter, along with suggested uh, redactions, uh, arguing that those executive summaries that he had included in the report could be released right then and there without any further delay. Release at this time would alleviate the misunderstandings that have arisen and would answer congressional and public questions about the nature and outcome of our investigation, Mueller wrote. But Barr declined to do that. It would be a full month before we saw the redacted version of the uh, Mueller report. The Mueller letter to Barr is the first uh, public evidence of widespread concern among Mueller and his team that the attorney general distorted their findings in his initial presentation. And it appears to directly contradict the sworn testimony that Barr gave to Congress in early April when he was asked, for example, by Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland on April 9, before the redacted report was publicly released, as to whether Mueller supported Barr's public characterization of the full report. Did Bob Mueller support your conclusion? I don't know whether Bob Mueller supported my conclusion. Well, he did know that Bob Mueller did not support his conclusion. And that's largely where things picked up on Wednesday in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, led by the sycophantic uh, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, with Republicans predictably asking questions about Hillary Clinton's email server. Yes, really. And pretending to be concerned about supposed corruption at the DOJ and FBI by those who launched this counterintelligence investigation into Russia and Team Trump's involvement with them. But uh, Barr acted not like the nation's attorney general, not like its top law enforcement uh, officer, but as the president's criminal defense lawyer throughout this hearing. And yes, he lied in his testimony to Congress again today. I want to play a couple of extended exchanges before we get to my guest, just to give you an idea of some of the better questioning from the Democrats. Let's start with Hawaii's Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono, who was, I believe, the most direct in calling out what many see as Barr's corruption here as an apparatchik and cover-up agent for Trump, who has lied in uh, the process and, as Hirono charges here, joining several other Democratic senators now, charging that he should resign. Mr. Barr, now the American people know that you are no different from Rudy Giuliani or Kellyanne Conway or any of the other people who sacrificed their once 
decent reputation for the grifter and liar who sits in the Oval Office. You once turned down a job offer from Donald Trump to represent him as his private attorney. At your confirmation hearing, you told Senator Feinstein that, quote, the job of attorney general is not the same as representing, end quote, the president. So you know the difference, but you've chosen to be the president's lawyer and side with him over the interests of the American people. To start with, you should never have been involved in supervising the Robert Mueller investigation. You wrote a 19-page unsolicited memo, which you admit was not based on any facts, attacking the premise of half of the investigation. And you also should have insisted that Deputy Attorney General Rob Rosenstein recuse himself. He wasn't just a witness to some of the president's obstructive behavior. We now know he was in frequent personal contact with the president, a subject of the investigation. You should have left it to career officials. Then, once the report was delivered by the special counsel, you delayed its release for more than two weeks. You let the president's personal lawyers look at it before you even deigned to let Congress or the public see it. During the time you substituted your own political judgment for the special counsel's, counsel's legal conclusions in a four-page letter to Congress. And now we know, thanks to a free press, that Mr. Mueller wrote your letter objecting to your so-called summary. When you called Mueller to discuss his letter, the reports are that he thought your summary was giving the press, Congress, and the public a misleading impression of his work. He asked you to release the report summaries to correct the misimpression you created, but you refused. When you finally did decide to release the report over a congressional recess and on the eve of two major religious holidays, you called a press conference to once again try to clear Donald Trump before anyone had a chance to read the special counsel's report and come to their own conclusions. But when we read the report, we knew Robert Mueller's concerns were valid and that your version of events was false. You used every advantage of your office to create the impression that the president was cleared of misconduct. You selectively quoted fragments from the special counsel's report, taking some of the most important statements out of context and ignoring the rest. You put the power and authority of the Office of the Attorney General and the Department of Justice behind a public relations effort to help Donald Trump protect himself. Finally. You lied to Congress. You told Representative Charlie Crist that you didn't know what objections Mueller's team might have to your March 24th so-called summary. You told Senator Chris Van Hollen that you didn't know if Bob Mueller supported your conclusions. But you knew you lied. And now we know. We know more about your deep involvement in trying to cover up for Donald Trump. Being Attorney General of the United States is a sacred trust. You have betrayed that trust. America deserves better. You should resign. That was Hawaii Senator uh, Maisie Hirono just going after William Barr there in her uh, a few minutes of, of uh, questioning for the Attorney General. Earlier in the day, there was this colloquy between Barr and Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin. I've been listening carefully to my Republican colleagues on the other side, and it appears that they are going to work together and coordinate the so-called locker-up defense. Uh, this is really not supposed to be about the Mueller investigation, the Russian involvement in the election, the Trump campaign, and so forth. It is really about Hillary Clinton's emails. Finally, we get down to the bottom line. 
Uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, some questions uh, have to be asked about Benghazi along the way, what about Travelgate, water, Whitewater, there's a lot of material we should be going through today according to their response to this. That is totally unresponsive to the reality of what the American people want to know. I respect Mr. Mueller and believe he came up with a sound report, though I don't agree with all of it. But I find, General Barr, that some of the things that you've engaged in uh, really leave me wondering what you believe your role as Attorney General is when it comes to something like this. Listen to what you received in a letter on March 27th from Bob Mueller. The summary letter the Department sent to Congress and released to public late in the afternoon, March 24th, did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of the office's work and conclusions. We communicated that concern to the Department on the morning of March 25th. There is now public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. This threatens to undermine a central purpose for which the Department appointed the Special Counsel, to assure full public confidence in the outcome of the investigations. I cannot imagine that you received that letter on March 24th and could not answer Congressman Chris directly when he asked you whether there were concerns about representations being made on these findings by the people working for Bob Mueller. You said, no, I don't know, after you received this letter. What am I missing? Well, I, as I explained to, uh, as I explained to uh, Senator Leahy, uh, I talked directly to Bob, and Bob told me that he did not have uh, objections to the accuracy Attorneys of don't put things in writing unless they're pretty serious about them. Well, There's an old rule in politics, a good politician doesn't write a letter and doesn't throw one away. Okay. So I've got to ask you, if he puts it in writing of his concerns or your representations on March 24th, you couldn't recall that when Congressman Chris asked you that question a few days later? No, I'm saying that this was... Uh, the, the, uh, the March 24th letter stated that Bob Mueller did not reach a conclusion on obstruction. And it had the language in there about not exonerating the president. Uh, my view of events was that there was a lot of criticism of the special counsel for the ensuing few days. And on Thursday, I got, I got this letter. Uh, and when I talked to the special counsel about the letter, my understanding was his concern was not the accuracy of the statement of the findings in my letter, but that he wanted more out there to provide additional context to explain his reasoning on why he didn't reach a decision on obstruction. I'll just say this, uh, Mr. Barr. If you received a letter from Bob Mueller a few days after your March 24th letter, it was clear he had some genu genuine concerns about what you had said and done to that point. That was Senator Dick Durbin uh, with a stuttering Attorney General Bill Barr there. One more before we get to a break. And, uh, and my guest, from whom we'll get some thoughts on all of this today and much more, uh, near the end of the hearing, California Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Kamala Harris asked some questions that echoed what I had been thinking throughout the entire hearing, which is that it sounded like Barr had not actually read the report, much less what she was asking about was the underlying evidence for the report before declaring that Trump had not obstructed justice. That, despite all of the evidence in the report itself, suggesting that he absolutely had, repeatedly. 
Senator Harris spoke with reporters within just the past hour, uh, just after the hearing adjourned about this. I believe that what was, I mean, absolutely enlightening and should be deeply troubling, troubling to the entire um, American public is that he made a decision and didn't review the evidence. No prosecutor worth her salt would make a decision about whether the president of the United States was involved in an obstruction of justice without reviewing the evidence. This attorney general lacks all credibility and has, I think, compromised the American public's ability to believe that he is a purveyor of justice. I believe she went on to say that, yes, Bill Barr should resign. Yes, she did. If I heard that correctly. Yep. Let's uh, take a quick break, and we will get some thoughts on all of this and much more from the uh, North Carolina writer and activist Tom Sullivan of Digby's Hullabaloo as we try, wish us luck, to make sense of the madness that is seemingly only getting more maddening and out of control under this president and this Republican Party and, uh, oh, some help that Tom has for you as far as what you can do about all of this in elections coming up where you, yes, you, live. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Would you concede that you had an opportunity to make this letter? public on April 4th when Representative Christ asked you a very related question? I don't know what you mean by related question. It seems to me it'd be a very different question. I can't even follow that down the road. That, I mean, boy, that's a masterful hair splitting. But it feels like a road to nowhere. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It may be a road to nowhere, but it is a very bumpy road. We will return to that matter in a moment with my guest here in a second. But in other news related to what may or may not happen in next year's election for the presidency and for all of the members of the U.S. House who will be up for re-election again next year, I'll be talking to my guest about this as well in a moment. Uh, according to The Hill, young Democrats at more than 30 colleges nationwide plan to boycott the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or DCCC or DCCC or as some call it the DTRIP 
in protest of a new policy that critics say is intended to freeze out challengers to incumbent representatives. The policy, reportedly launched in late March, would require Democratic consultants and strategists to pledge not to work for candidates challenging a sitting Democratic member of Congress or be left off a list of vendors approved to work with the DCCC. That's the House Democrats' campaign arm. The Harvard College Democrats are leading the coalition, which initially featured 26 chapters nationwide, but which Harvard Democrats uh, confirmed uh, to the Hill currently stands now at 42 chapters around the country, including groups based in Arizona, New Hampshire, Michigan, New Jersey, Virginia, and elsewhere. In a letter last week, the Harvard Democrats said, quote, primary challengers are essential to ensure the Democratic Party is continually held accountable to the needs of our constituents. This blacklist policy is undemocratic and antithetical to our values of inclusion and diversity. When reached for comment, a spokesperson for the DCCC told The Hill uh, that the group is, quote, proud of its historic work, flipping 43 formerly Republican seats last November and electing the most diverse caucus in American history. So the fights are already underway within the Democratic Party itself, as you might have predicted. The spokesman for the DCCC says that uh, seeking to stymie progressive candidates is not their aim. Those reports are inaccurate. And uh, he notes that in the 2018 midterms, the DCCC spent a total of nearly $26 million to elect candidates who would later join the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So, yes, as the nightmares regarding Donald Trump's presidency continue, the response to that presidency does as well on the ground across the country as both the 2020 Democratic presidential primaries heat up and as incumbents in Congress hope to protect their blue wave wins from last year and as new challengers to incumbents in both the Democratic and Republican parties prepare to take them on in upcoming primaries. And, of course, nowhere are many of these contests more intense than in the great state of North Carolina, where they're not even waiting for those 2020 primaries as two different U.S. House elections are already underway this year. Primaries were held yesterday. That's right. It was Election Day in the state's third congressional district to replace the uh, for a special election to replace the late Republican Congressman Walter Jones. And in a few months, the redo, the do-over election in the 9th Congressional District, which was called following the GOP absentee ballot fraud scandal that prevented Republican Mark Harris's reported victory over Democrat Dan McCready from ever being certified by the state at all after last November's election. Oh, we've got a lot to talk to my uh, guest about today. Tom Sullivan is an Asheville, North Carolina-based writer who has written for the Asheville Citizen Times, Huffington Post, Crooks and Liars, Bill Moyers and Company, and can be read each and every morning covering all manner of issues at our friend Heather Digby Parton's blog. That's the Hullabaloo blog. He is also, as a progressive activist in the uh, Tar Heel State, he is the author of For the Win, a nuts and bolts training guide in countywide get out the vote operations, which sounds 
like it may be very useful in every state in the country, not just in North Carolina. Hey, Tom Sullivan, thanks for joining us today on the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It is an absurdly busy day and also a sad day in North Carolina following the Tuesday shootings at the uh, University of North Carolina in Charlotte, uh, which I want to ask you about as well, along with everything else here today. I had been hoping to talk to you for a while about what is going on on the ground in uh, in perhaps the swingiest of swing states of North Carolina about that GOP absentee ballot fraud scandal that left a uh, House seat vacant where we'll have a new election. So we've got a new election coming up there and then this one in the third congressional district. So but over the past tw- so we're, we are going to talk about that. But over the past 24 hours, we've had a ton of breaking news. Some regarding North Carolina and that shooting, etc. But before all of that, I know you, too, have been monitoring the William Barr hearings in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee regarding his release of the Mueller report and Mueller's own concerns that Barr's initial four page summary a month ago had misled the public and mischaracterized the findings of Mueller's report. So uh, let's start there. Uh, first, your top line response to whatever the hell it was that we saw today in the uh, U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee with Bob Barr, with Bill Barr. I, it was <laughs> it was a pretty stunning performance. Um, I wrote about it briefly this morning. Um, you know, uh, Barr admitted he basically did not review the evidence in the report before uh, declaring that. Uh, it, uh, it in in not so many words exonerated the president. Mm-hmm. It was it was stunning. Uh, he kept uh, report. He kept repeating that uh, he even suggested that the president would be justified in uh, interfering with the uh, with the investigation if because he faced false charges. Uh, I was following Marcy Wheeler, mm-hmm. who kept saying. Somebody ask him what he thinks are the false charges. Get him to state it, but he did not. Yeah, and did, um, and did Dever- Democrats ever uh, press him on on that at all? No, no, uh, I did not. I did not see him uh, pressed on that at all. And uh, he kept dancing around uh, mm-hmm. the evidence that was there. I, I said it was. It was practically had to pin him back in a chair and go clockwork orange on him to get <laughs> to get him to see. What was printed in black and white by Robert Mueller? Yeah, he did not bother to. Uh, it, it, was, it seemed clear that he did not bother to really look at that report before coming to his conclusions. And in fact, there were certain questions that they were asking him that he, from you know, straight from the report, that he didn't seem to understand at all. References to uh, various characters, and and when I was watching it, I had the sense that. He didn't really read this report. Did you get that sense? I got the not only that when uh, Kamala Harris questioned him, mm-hmm. it became clear that he had not, and it also seemed to be that he had reached his decision before he even got the report. That's why it took took him no time at all to uh, issue that four page letter. What can we glean? Do you think, based on what we saw from Republicans in today's hearings, uh, who were, of course, on about? Hillary's email and about their concerns about corruption at the FBI and DOJ that, uh, you know, this this investigation was even started in the first place. Uh, what, what, what can we glean from that, Tom, about what we might see 
if House Democrats ever summon up the courage to bring impeachment proceedings and and uh, refer the matter to the U.S. Senate for a trial and a vote to remove or not remove the, the president of the United States? Should we take anything from what we saw in the Senate Judiciary Committee today? Well, it's, it's hard to know where Nancy Pelosi is going to go with this, but uh, I've been arguing that it will never get to the Senate. Or, or if they do pass articles of impeachment in the House, there's no guarantee that Mitch McConnell will even acknowledge receiving them, much less schedule a trial in the Senate. Given, given the Merrick Garland uh, precedent. Which is kind of a mind-blowing thought. I've mentioned that here. Your suggestion being that because the Constitution doesn't say that the Senate shall hold a trial, that Mitch McConnell may take this uh, impeachment reference from the House, if it ever happens, and just do nothing with it? Simply hold no trial at all? Really? could certainly do that. He, 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 one would have thought he would have given uh, President Obama's last Supreme Court pick the due of having hearings, and that never happened. Is that a reason why? Well, Greg Sargent uh, from Washington Post tweeted today, if this hearing is revealing one thing, it's the utter and inexplicable folly of making the decision of whether to launch an impeachment inquiry contingent on whether Republicans agree to it. I've argued that it's the Democrats seem to be essentially giving Republicans a veto on whether this guy should be impeached or not because, oh, well, Republicans will never vote for it in the Senate, so we might might as well not even hold impeachment hearings. Shouldn't they? Uh, uh, well, shouldn't they do so anyway? Uh, hold these impeachment inquiries, uh, no matter what it is that either Republicans would vote for, or whether or not Republicans would even hold a trial in the Senate. Isn't that there? Isn't that the Republican? Uh, I'm sorry, the the Democrats' duty here in the House. Oh, I think they. I think they want to do their duty as they see it, as according to the Constitution. I've just been trying to warn people not to uh, expect a lot from those articles once they've been uh, signed off on and voted. Because when it gets to the Senate, I don't expect Mitch McConnell to do anything with them. But, Tom, they're not even uh, over in the House. You know, Nancy Pelosi had been she hasn't taken it off the table, but she and many others in the Democratic leadership have been very reticent about even using the impeachment word. Aren't we long past that? I mean, Elizabeth Warren Democratic presidential candidate. She has vaulted now into second place in at least one poll that came out this week in the uh, uh, Democratic primary race. She's vaulted to second place after being very clear about the need for impeachment. And she tweeted today, A.G. Barr, talking about Bill Barr, is a disgrace and his alarming efforts to suppress the Mueller report show he's not a credible head of federal law enforcement. He should resign. And based on the actual facts in the Mueller report, Congress should begin impeachment proceedings against the president. Well, that was apparently very popular, at least with Democratic primary voters. Why the... Why are they why do they seem to be pulling punches in in the U.S. House on the Democratic side? Or am I imagining that? No, I I think they're I think they're being uh, cautious. I don't I think they may get there. Um, You know, I think they're going to try to 
do the, uh, the the Watergate scenario, and they're going to try to hold hearings and not call. You know, the the, the anxiousness uh, among the progressives I speak with is they want to have impeachment hearings. They don't want to have just hearings. It's the name is meaningful, and they're you know they they want to see that happen to and, and see uh, the president tainted with it. So they may get there. I'm just not sure when that's going to happen. Is does it matter? Is it a distinct distinction without a difference whether they call it impeachment uh, inquiry or not? Uh, are they on the right path as as you see it in the House? As far as I mean, they are continuing the investigation and the hearings for sure. That seems to be the distinction that that uh, Pelosi's taking. That they're going to do the hearings and they won't call them impeachment hearings. They may get to that at the end of them, but. Uh, People want the the emotional satisfaction of having them called mm-hmm. impeachment hearings, I think. Does it, uh, Tom Sullivan, out in North Carolina, I was sort of thinking of you today as uh, I knew I was going to talk to you, and I was listening to C-SPAN Radio and the callers there, and... Uh, this was before Barr's hearing today. One caller after another after another really think that the real crime here was committed by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and the people who ran the DOJ and FBI under him, who uh, supposedly spied on poor Donald Trump and his campaign, uh, who did nothing wrong. One caller after another. Is that a problem for Democrats, are Republicans sort of winning that, and Donald Trump sort of winning that PR war? Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of, you know, swing states like North Carolina, which are seen uh, sometimes as as conservative. Uh, how is the idea of impeachment playing on the ground there in uh, in the uh, Tar Heel state? Well, I'm I'm you know mostly tapped in with the local uh, progressive community, and mm-hmm. I'm not hearing so much from that. Although I did, uh, I was at the ninth district Democratic convention on Saturday. It, it it is a conservative state. It is conservative leaning, and depending on where you are, mm-hmm. but I think those sorts of voters are not in play in the first place. So I I, I think it's it's not a great worry that. The, the voters you heard from uh, are the voters you heard from. They are not our voters. So there's not a concern, uh, at least among the Democrats that you're speaking to, that, oh, if we impeach, we are somehow hurting hurting ourselves, hurting our chances in 2020. Oh, that's, huh, that is always present among the Democrats since I've been doing any work with folks. There, uh, There's always this reflexive crouch, this... What will the Republicans say before they'll take any bold steps? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's always in play. So that's uh, is, so that is something that is a concern among Democrats. There, they they are also pulling their punches. It sounds like in North Carolina. I'm sure. I'm sure. I wouldn't have to dig very uh, <laughs> long to find a few. Yeah. Well, I want to come back and and talk about uh, some of the specifics that you've been uh, writing about, that you've been working on for a while on the ground in North Carolina, Tom. But before we do, a uh, a 22-year-old man armed with a pistol opened fire on students at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte during the last day of classes. On Tuesday night, he killed two people, wounded four, three are said to be in critical condition. Uh, At least when I last uh, checked on this, I'm wondering if you've been able to 
learn or hear any more about the story about the shooter's motive. I think he's in custody. Uh, do we know anything else about him out there in North Carolina right now? Not too much in terms of motive. Um, the the three who were in critical condition, the reports are now that they will probably recover. Good. One of the four who was injured has been treated and released. And one of the students who was killed uh, is, actually is a high school graduate from Asheville, where I, uh, where mm. I live here. Mm. So that's, uh, that strikes home. There seems to have been the, the, the reporting is that this kid is recently uh, from Texas. Reporters from AP spoke with his grandfather mm-hmm. out there who said he, seen, he didn't think that his son had any history with, uh, uh, as a gun enthusiast and is completely dumbstruck. I'm wondering how the state, uh, sort of speaking of, you know, an evenly divided state and a conservative-ish state, how they are reacting uh, to that, to to this uh, shooting, which, uh, you know, is damn near a daily occurrence now, not necessarily in North Carolina, but all around the country. This is, uh, you know, a Republican gerrymandered state legislature, but you got now a Thankfully, a, a Democratic governor. Have there been calls for new gun safety laws in North Carolina either since this uh, tragic shooting or before the shooting? Or is this another one of those issues that Democrats in a conservative-ish state tend to uh, lean away from? Well, uh, as you've been saying, it's been kind of a busy news day. Yeah. So uh, not as such. I mean, we've got a statewide uh, teacher walkout today. So mm-hmm. there's teachers are all over the Capitol protesting uh, their their pay level. Mm. Uh, as well as that, in the legislature, they are in the process of uh, whether or not they will override Governor Cooper's uh, veto of one of these bills that uh, Trump has been saying that Doctors and uh, doctors and mothers can uh, uh, oh yeah give have, have give birth and then uh, euthanize the child yeah so that that's all in, that's all working this week uh, the Senate uh, passed it by one vote the two thirds majority by one vote yesterday with a Democratic crossover but it has yet to go into the House where uh, Democrats now hold the majority since uh, 2018. And so uh, that it looks like that's going to be sustained. So there hasn't been any real time to, to take up anything on gun legislation. Let me take a quick break here. I'm speaking with Tom Sullivan, uh, North Carolina-based writer. You may be familiar with his work uh, as he blogs as Bloggers Are Us over at our friend Digby's uh, site, Digby's Hullabaloo. Take a quick break here. We'll come back and we'll talk about Election Day in North Carolina yesterday, as if there is not enough going on right now in that state or the rest of the country. Election Day yesterday and uh, several elections coming up over the next, uh, well, the next few weeks and months in North Carolina, plus the fight between the progressives and the conservative Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs) 
The Bratcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. Yeah, we are in Carolina today. No At least our guest is Tom Sullivan of Digby's Hullabaloo joining us uh, to talk about all manner of things. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Tom, uh, thanks, by the way, for your willingness to be able to uh, jump around and talk about all of these things that have developed over just the past 24 hours since I knew I wanted to have you on in the first place. So, uh, no, no problem. Let's. Uh, w- one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because of these uh, special U.S. House elections in North Carolina. Two of them. One of them, the primary was held yesterday uh, to replace the uh, uh, seat held by the late Republican Walter Jones, and another one over this absentee ballot scandal, this redo election coming up in the 9th Congressional District. Hit those real quickly first. In the uh, 3rd, North Carolina 3rd, I think there was some 17 candidates on the Republican side, uh, and so there's going to be a runoff there. And then on the Democratic side, they, they did choose their candidate. What do we know about the outlook in that race for Walter Jones' seat, that special election coming up? Uh, well, for Walter Jones, they, uh, the winner in that, on the Democratic side was a gentleman named Alan Thomas, who was a former mayor of Greenville, North Carolina, uh, east of Raleigh. Uh, NC3 basically is coastal counties above, uh, above Wilmington all the way to the Virginia border. Mm-hmm. So he, he apparently is a more moderate candidate. He beat, he beat out a, uh, a new guy who I thought would be kind of interesting. He's a Marine colonel who just uh, just uh, retired in uh, September or so, and seemed to be more progressive. But uh, this guy's got more name recognition. This Alan Thomas, and so he's the Democratic candidate. On the Republican side, we've got two physicians, mm-hmm. uh, both conservative anti-abortion doctors. Uh, the top vote getter on the Republican side has already drawn a um, an endorsement from uh, everybody's favorite Freedom Caucus chair, uh, Mark Meadows, mm. who happens to be my congressman. Oh, congratulations! Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You're yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so you know, we'll we'll see what happens with that. I don't know much about. Uh, Alan Thomas, although I am scheduled to go uh, do some training with those counties uh, in mid-May and uh, perhaps get to meet him. And I want to talk about your training in a moment. That election, uh, well, now we have to wait for the Republican primary to take place before we get to the actual special election. But it's a uh, Walter Jones was a fascinating character. He was the guy. Many saw him as hard right when he demanded they change the name of the French fries in the U.S. House Uh, cafeteria to Freedom Fries, and then he had a change of heart when he realized he had sort of been had by George W. Bush and the Republicans, and he ended up regretting his vote for war in Iraq and actually sent letters, as I understand it, 
signed letters to every single service member that was killed during the Iraq conflict. So he was a Republican, but he voted with Democrats a lot. Is there any chance that this uh, we could see the seat, Walter Jones' seat, actually flip to a Democrat in this special election? Uh, well, that remains to be seen. It is a very Republican district. The voter turnout in those counties is not very good. They're, they're, most of them are very uh, small and and poor, typically, and not without not with a lot of organization, which is one of the reasons I'm going out there to try to see what I can do to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will see how much money this Alan Thomas uh, can can raise. Apparently, he's got some a lot of business connections. He seems to be a more moderate Democrat, which may fit with that district. Um, but and uh, it looks like the two doctors on the Republican side are going to try to out Trump each other. So. Mm. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Well, hopefully that does not play well in Walter Jones's district because he was elected uh, year after year, even though he did not always vote with the Republicans. Uh, so you mentioned the work that you're going out to, to, to do there. Tell me about very quickly your uh, For the Win training guide for activists and uh, your efforts for uh, turning out the votes with this program. What exactly do you do, and is it anything that uh, others around the country might be able to benefit from? Sure. I uh, Just be, by my experience, I've been doing this about 15 years and working in a couple of congressional campaigns and mm-hmm. local campaigns and running get-out-the-vote operations on a county-wide basis, and what I find with a lot of counties around the uh, around the state and around the country quite frankly is many of them are terribly disorganized or or unorganized poorly organized mm. and what i'm trying to teach rather than uh, strategy or messaging or targeting i'm trying to teach basically how to put your pants on one leg at a time and tie your shoes in and uh, hopefully in that order um <laughs> To, to folks who don't get exposed to the bigger campaigns and don't learn the nuts and bolts of just how to assemble, how do you, how do you put together a Rides to the Polls program, how do you organize multiple early voting sites and staff them and keep them supplied. It's all the, it's all the mechanics that no one teaches. Nowhere in the country, as far as I can tell. And this is not even uh, necessarily policy. This is not part of that progressive versus uh, conservative uh, uh, battle within the, uh, or versus establishment battle within the Democratic Party. This is just how to get people uh, up, motivated, and out to the polls, correct? And basically just trying to teach people uh, the, the, the basic training that, ca- that states do around the country is, is rather limited. They, it's basic training every year because they've got new people coming in. So what they do is they, it's basically, this is a precinct, this is how you organize it, here's mm-hmm. how you canvass your neighborhood, uh, here's how you get into the voter database and pull a list. But as I know from my experience is out where governors and senators and presidential campaigns don't go, people not, don't necessarily learn how to put that all together with uh, uh, electioneering material, mm. staffing their polling locations, their early voting, just, even just managing yard signs. I mean, it's, it's a lot of mechanics that people are impressed with what we do. 
whenever I get people coming in from out of town, out of state, people are saying, I've never seen anything like this before. Well, isn't that the problem? Yeah, apparently. We're trying to fix that. Apparently so. Nuts and bolts. But it's nuts and bolts sometimes that win these uh, races, and particularly with, you know, some of the close races we've seen in North Carolina. Uh, Where can folks get more information on uh, your For the Win uh, training guide for activists? Uh, if they if they request it, I mean, right now it's it's in being updated for 2020, mm-hmm. but they can uh, clearly contact me through uh, email address on uh, Digby. Mm-hmm. But for for the win, I'm using Tom dot Blue Century at Gmail. Okay, uh, I can uh, send them uh, download for free. Okay. My mother does not approve. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> And, uh, no, I, I've sent this to 2,300 counties across the country last year and hundreds of activists, over 1,000 downloads, and uh, wow. more than a few thank you notes. I got a thank you notes uh, from Iowa where they picked up a couple of state legislative seats Democrats had never held and lost a third and a recount by 11 votes. I will try to link to that kit. We'll talk off the air. I'll get the address for it so folks can get it when we post today at uh, bradblog.com. I got uh, like two minutes and two questions for you, Tom, so good luck answering them that quickly. One, I mentioned at the uh, top of the previous segment this fight that seems to be either developing or continuing between the progressives in the Democratic Party and the more conservative Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. you got young Democrats now at colleges around the country planning to boycott the DCCC because they are not... they they claim that if, uh, you know, advisors and uh, uh, strategists and so forth work to... Uh, primary incumbents, then those advisors and strategists will end up on a blacklist. Uh, is uh, A, are the young Democrats and their response uh, appropriate here? And uh, B, are we going to be eating ourselves alive again uh, on the progressive side before we get to the 2020 elections at all this year? Well, let's hope we're not eating each other alive. I think what the, uh, this is a long-standing issue. When when people, uh, especially in the progressive side, talk about the establishment Democrats, some of them are not exactly talking about the Democratic Party proper. These groups like the DCCC and DSCC are their affiliates, mm-hmm. but don't really have, a, to my knowledge, a rule-based uh, position in the party. These are mem- made up of members of Congress. These are the campaign arms. But they're also part of the uh, the, uh, con- the the campaign industrial complex that mm-hmm. exists in Washington, mm-hmm. as well as in the state capitals. So these organizations like the C, they're not just um, uh, the blacklists are not just because they want to shut out progressives, as you mentioned, that they say, hey, we help get progressives elected. It's a turf battle. Uh, the folks who are be- a part of that part of that network, part of the the vendors and the consultants and the campaign professionals, and the DCCC, uh, they've got a per- permanent office, permanent staff. They've got uh, you know salaries and benefits and mm-hmm. rents to pay. And if they they get their money from the um, from the members of Congress who spent all those hours you hear about dialing for dollars down the street in those yeah. cubicles, yeah. And and if the DCCC does not use its clout to um, 
run interference to keep people from interfering from uh, primarying their their uh, mm-hmm. incumbents. Why would their incumbents uh, spend all those hours in the cubicle raising money for them? So, you know, part of their money comes from the candidates. Some of it comes from the uh, nagging emails you get. But also, you know, this this is about this is about money. When you talk about money in campaigns, this is the money arm that funds the reelection efforts. But uh, if you threaten their can if you threaten their candidates, their their incumbent candidates, they have to spend more money fighting that uh, primary battle, and they'll have less money to give to the D Triple C. Are you suggesting that folks like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Ayanna Presley, both of whom who uh, uh, you know uh, progressive uh, freshmen uh, who have uh, opposed this uh, policy by the DCCC, are you uh, suggesting that some of those incumbents do not get, that they should not give their uh, so-called dues, they shouldn't pay dues at all to the DCCC to try to get the DCCC to back off of this policy? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure what they're going to do, and I don't know how, I don't know what the uh, <laughs> recidivism rate is among members who don't pay their dues. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we talk about getting money out of politics, this is one of the places where it, where it has a big influence mm-hmm. and allows groups like the DCCC, who prefer candidates who can raise lots of money, to perhaps people who are better Democrats but uh, can't raise so much. That's where they have a lot of influence in determining who you're going to get to vote for in November. That- so if you can eliminate... If you can eliminate if you can do some campaign finance changes that it will uh, allow uh, the dialing for dollars to get out of the equation, those groups will have less clout. We're going to have to uh, stop for now and with a promise to come back to chat about this more in the months ahead as we get uh as the elections heat up. And as a matter of fact, we didn't even get to the uh, NC9 race uh, where uh, the GOP election fraud has resulted in a do-over election. But that election is still a few months away. So I can have you back, Tom Sullivan, uh, to talk more about it, uh, about that in uh, the weeks ahead. You can find Tom Sullivan's work, of course, every morning at Digby's blog, Digby's Hullabaloo. That is digbysblog.blogspot.com. You can and should find and follow him on the Twitter where he is bloggers are us and if you want to get that uh, for the win training guide for activists on the ground you can reach him at tom.bluecentury at gmail.com I will also try to link to it at bradblog.com thanks uh, for being able to go everywhere with us today Tom and we'll uh, try to focus more a bit next time we have you on my friend Oh, been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, Tom Sullivan. Okay, we got to get out. Thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Missed any portion of today's program? Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, where we have years and years of such programs for you to enjoy and share. You can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. And as always, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we do every day here on your public airwaves. That is it until we otherwise meet again. I'm Brad Friedman. Boy, oh boy. Good luck, world. (laughs) 